All right, so we're picking up in verse 53 here of Mark 14 as we're making our way uh, toward the end of Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we've come to the place now where Jesus has been arrested. We saw that last time. And now we're looking at some of the details of the things that transpired during uh, his uh, interrogation and sentencing and, and those things. So we'll look more at that in, in the weeks ahead. But I want to focus this morning on this idea of the Son of Man. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered this before. I remember wondering this myself. And I, I find that this is a question that frequently gets asked. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? What does that mean? And that's what we want to consider here today. It's interesting because Jesus, in um, just in Matthew's gospel and in uh, John's gospel alone, 41 times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, where he only refers to himself four times as the Son of God in the Gospel of John. Now, of course, he is the Son of God, but this is his preferred title. He refers to himself over and over and over again as the Son of Man. So we want to consider that together here today. We want to see why did he do that and what does this Son of Man language mean? So that'll be the main thing that we're going to focus on. Uh, but first, before we do that, I want us to take a look at a couple of things in the text that we read together. Um, and I want us to see that the things that are happening to Jesus here, even the, the details are things that were prophesied about him. So this is one of the amazing things about the life of Jesus and the account in the New Testament is that the, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, his birth, all of these things, they were prophesied. They were predicted centuries before they happened. And they were predicted very uh, specifically. So it's, it's not just these generalizations of there's going to be a person that's going to come and, and, you know, it's all very vague. Uh, no, it, it's very, very detailed. And we see that in two places here in the verses that we read. And the first one that I want us to just look at is from the 61st verse where Jesus is there before the high priest. And it just simply says he kept silent and answered nothing. Now, that's actually what the prophetic word said would happen. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Christ came, before these events transpired, 700 years before. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So this silence of Jesus during this uh, process of being interrogated is something that Isaiah said would happen. And now it's being fulfilled very specifically, as I pointed out. But then in verse 65, there's another thing that we should note. Verse 65 says, Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. 
and the officers struck him with the palms of their hand. Now, again, Isaiah speaks of these things. In the 50th chapter of Isaiah, we read this. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. So uh, this, this to me is so fascinating, and it's something that we need to realize and understand and, and even share uh, with others that all that happened with Jesus, all these things that were happening here at his trial, these were things that were predicted hundreds of years before he came. And it's the prophetic um, aspect of the scriptures that is really the the built-in proof that these are the words of God and not the words of men. Uh, This is the thing. You know, people ask the question, well, how, how, how do we know the Bible is God's word? It seems like it's just the word of men. A lot of people, of course, would say the Bible isn't God's word. It's just the words of men. But God built in evidence that the Bible is his word. And what is that evidence? It is predictive prophecy. God tells us in advance, and in many cases, centuries in advance, what's going to happen. And so we see what Isaiah said is literally, very specifically unfolding right here in this uh, time where Jesus is standing before the rulers of the nation and being tried. So it's here now that the, the high priest, he asked Jesus this very pointed question. Now, of course, they're, they're trying to find a reason to condemn him. And we saw as uh, in the scripture reading, uh, they were making things up. But their, their stories uh, were contradicting each other and so forth. So they're looking for something to be able to pin on Jesus that they can then condemn him over that. So here's what happens. At this point in verse 62, we read it. Um, Well, 61, the high priest, he asks him this question. And the other gospels, I think it's Matthew, lets us know that the high priest, it says that the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. So what the high priest is doing now, Jesus is not responding, right? So the high priest is uh, commanding him in the name of God to speak. And so that's what he says. Uh, And he asked him a question. And the question is this, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. Now, it's interesting because I have had people tell me that Jesus never really claimed to be the Messiah. Well, the high priest certainly thought that he did. And the ruling council thought that he did because it was on this basis that they said, look, what what further evidence do do we need? He's blasphemed. Now, they considered that blasphemy. They considered it blasphemy that Jesus, now, not that someone would claim to be the Messiah, but that this man would claim to be the Messiah because they were absolutely convinced if the the Messiah came, of course, uh, he would let them know. And he would be on their team. 
<laughs> but he's evidently not on their team. So as far as they're concerned, he cannot be the Messiah. But he's saying, I am the Messiah. And so for those who would say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, he certainly did claim to be the Messiah. And this isn't the only place that he did it. In speaking to the religious leaders, John tells us in the 10th chapter that at a certain point they come to Jesus and, (coughs) excuse me, they come to Jesus and they say, "Um, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus says, I did tell you, but you didn't believe me. But the, the, for me, the best place where Jesus says he's the Messiah is in his conversation with the, the Samaritan woman. Because uh, the Samaritan woman, of course, she was an outcast from Israel. She would be despised. But yet Jesus clearly reveals himself to her as the Messiah. She says to him at a certain point in the conversation, she says, we know that the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to tell us everything. And Jesus said, woman, I who am speaking to you am he. I am the Messiah. And so Jesus here makes it clear. He says, I am. But then he adds this. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So this is what we want to look at, the Son of Man. Why does Jesus use this term? Why is this his favorite way to uh, refer to himself? And um, I think there are three reasons. The first reason is because the term, uh, it just simply refers to his humanity. So when you go through the Bible, you'll find the, the term the Son of Man used in various places. Uh, probably the most frequent use of it is found in the book of Ezekiel. And God speaks to Ezekiel and refers to him most of the time as son of, son of man. So that's why there's some confusion because people say, well, wait a second, Jesus calls himself the son of man, but Ezekiel is referred to by God as the son of man. Well, the first meaning, like I said, is that, that of a human being. So that's the first meaning. <coughs> the second is to understand it as the son of mankind. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. And then the third is the son of man is a reference to the Messiah King. Now that is the way that Jesus primarily used it uh, to refer to himself as the Messiah King. But we'll see that uh, in more detail in a moment. But Jesus is the Son of Man. So let's look at Jesus as the Son of Man in relation to those three things. First of all, Jesus is the Son of Man, and that means that he is human. Now, we talked about this recently uh, because sometimes I know that I did this as a young Christian, and I find that people will still do this today. Sometimes, even though we know Jesus was a human being, we somehow don't know how human he was, or we miss that. We think things like, well, Jesus was human, of course, but he was also God. Therefore, um, you know, he couldn't have had like the experience that I have because he was God too. But what we need to understand is that Jesus is fully God, and he's fully human at the same time. He partook fully in our nature. So Jesus was a a human being. There have been different ideas about 
the nature of Jesus over the long centuries of the church. And um, there have been debates and there have been councils that have had to come together to decide, you know, exactly uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about the nature of Jesus. But what we need to understand is that he was not two beings so that you could dissect him and be left with one half God and one half man. But some people thought that that was a, actually an idea in the ancient world, that, that, that that's what they thought. But that is incorrect. He is one being with two natures that cannot be separated. Jesus is one being with two natures that can't be separated. Now, sometimes, again, we think that, well, you know, there was the God part of Jesus and there was the human part of Jesus. And here's where that uh, issue kind of would come into play. Let's say, for example, when we talk about the sinlessness of Jesus, the question is asked, and it's interesting that there's a theological divide over it, but the question is asked, could Jesus have committed sin? And I bet if I ask that question to you today, I bet you there would be different answers. Um, could Jesus have committed sin? The answer is no. <laughs> Some people say, wait a second. It says in the Bible that he was tempted in all points as we are. And, and so if he couldn't have committed sin, that couldn't have been a real temptation. Well, it could be a real temptation, but the fact of the matter is Jesus could not have sinned. Now, some people say, but, but in his humanity, he could have sinned. He just couldn't have sinned in his deity. But you see, that's separating the two, like you could disconnect them from one another. You can't disconnect them. Jesus is the God-man. And, and those, those things are so intertwined with one another that you couldn't say, well, his humanity could sin, but his divinity couldn't sin. You just have to say he is both God and man. Therefore, no, he could not sin because God can't sin. He can't be tempted with sin. And so Jesus could not sin in that sense. Now, some people say, like I mentioned, well, if Jesus couldn't sin, then his temptation wasn't real. Oh, yes, it was. You know, you, you can think of it in terms of, a, of uh, an attack or an assailing. Now, you could, some, somebody could conceivably be attacked or assailed, but they're they're invincible. It doesn't mean they're, uh, it doesn't mean they can't be attacked. It just means they can't be overthrown. And so that's the case with Jesus. Jesus went through the attacks, but in the end, he could not be defeated or overcome by those things. So when we're talking about Jesus as the son of man, we are talking, first of all, about his human nature. But secondly, we're talking about Jesus as a son of mankind. And this is a, a, a different, this is a different perspective on it. So in the ancient Near East, and really in probably in the modern Near East as well, as well as in other cultures, we know that um, the family's hopes rest in the son. You know, when you read the Bible and you see that this, many times it, it comes through this deep desire that the people had for a son. And why the priority of the son? I mean, did, did everybody think that um, 
you know, boys are better than girls? No. But it was through the son that the life of the family would be continued. And so they desired a son. I mean, you think of it in our culture even, uh, the name is perpetuated by the male, right? So in, in the ancient culture, it was more than just the name being perpetuated. It was everything that had to do with the family. So it was through the son that the family name would be perpetuated, the family assets would be secured, and the family future would be set. So it's through Jesus that mankind will be perpetuated, secured, and set for the future. Now, here's the reality that most people don't know and wouldn't believe if you told them, but we'll find out one day in the future, humanity has no future apart from Jesus. Jesus is the son of mankind. He's the one that will perpetuate humanity. Humanity will go on uh, because of Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter two, the author, he, he sort of brings us to this idea. Let me read it to you. He's quoting from the eighth Psalm, but the author of Hebrews says, but one testified in a certain place. The certain place is the eighth Psalm. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under mankind. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. You see, the future of humanity and the fulfillment of all that God desired for humanity when he created us is this dominion, this rule over creation. But it never happened because sin entered into the world. But it's going to happen. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen through the son of mankind. And so we don't see this realized at this point, at the time of the writing of the New Testament 2,000 years ago, and we don't see it realized today. But what do we see? We see Jesus. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, or some translations read, for a little while lower than the angels. And he's crowned with glory and honor. So Jesus is the one through whom the human race will be perpetuated and secured for the future. The third understanding of the Son of Man and the one that I said is, is the one that Jesus is primarily um, referring to when he uses that, that title um, is... The, the reference to the Messiah King. So when Jesus said this, like I said, uh, between Matthew and John, 41 times, if you add Mark and Luke, it's, it's probably a little bit more, but Mark and Luke have a lot of overlap. But it, so let's just say, you know, the 41 times that Jesus says uh, something about himself and refers to himself as a son of man, 
the people, their minds would have automatically gone in one direction, just the same direction that it went with the high priest and the council that day. Because for them, the Son of Man was a very specific prophetic promise. And it was the promise of one who would come and dominion over the universe would be given to him. And that promise was declared in Daniel chapter 7. And the people knew that. So, you know, for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, they had one messianic expectation. Now, we learned, and some of them learned, <laughs> the apostles and so forth, they learned that there, there was more than one aspect to the mission of the Messiah. What did they learn? They learned about Isaiah 53. They learned that, oh, the Messiah is going to suffer. The Messiah is going to die. The Messiah is going to rise again. They, they learned that from Isaiah 53, from Psalm 22. But the vast majority of Jews never did learn that. They still haven't learned it today. Um, so for the, for the Jewish ear at the time, when they heard Jesus say, son of man, they immediately went to this figure that is described in Daniel chapter seven of this glorious one, the son of man who comes and dominion over the universe is given to him. Now, this will give you a little bit of insight into why the, the high priest was irate. This person standing here, this peasant from Galilee is claiming to be that. For him, it's like, no way. And, and for many of the people, it was no way. It's like, wait, no, the son of man, he's coming on the power. He's coming with clouds. But Jesus says, I am. Yes, I am the Christ, the son of the blessed. And you will see the son of man referring to himself. Now, let's look really quickly at the Daniel passages. And I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 9 and 10, and then verses 13 and 14. You can turn there if you like, or you can just let me read it to you. But I would encourage you to at least remember uh, where I'm reading from, because this is a passage you want to go back and you want to just read it and meditate on it and think about it and rejoice over it, because this is the future, my friends. This is where things are all going to go. But um, but one thing before I read it, let me just say, the, the amazing thing about all of it is that the prophecy from Daniel declared this, that a human being would sit on the throne of the universe and rule it. That's the, that's the amazing thing. So going back to that first point, that son of man means human being, that's what the prophecy was, that a human being would sit on the throne of the universe and rule it. So in Daniel, it says this, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I watched, Daniel is speaking, till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head, was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued from, issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Daniel sees a vision of God sitting upon the throne. The Ancient of Days is a reference to God. And we would understand God as God the Father. And now look what it goes on to say, um, picking up in verse 13. I was watching 
the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one that shall not be destroyed. That's that's what was in the minds of people when Jesus said or referred to himself as the Son of Man. That was their point of identification. And so here, really, the amazing thing is that Jesus of Nazareth is standing before the rulers of the nation of Israel and really of the whole world because they're, uh, they're together with the Romans in this. It's, it's both the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders that sentence Christ to death. But he is there standing before the leaders of the whole world. And in response to the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus says, I am, and you shall see me. I'm the son of man. You shall see the son of man seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow. That is a, a boom moment. <laughs> that, that is a, a mic drop. That is where you're just like, nothing else can be said. That was it. And of course, we see the response of the high priest. He flipped his lid. He screamed out, this is blasphemy. He put him to death. And everybody agreed to do so because, because of the radicalness of the claim that Jesus was making. And, and I want you to just notice um, also that you have um, two, you have the Daniel 7 passage, but then you have the, the Psalm 110 um, passage about the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus has already referred to this until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus is really combining both of those things here in the, in the picture that he's giving and so, I think about, specifically about Jewish people today. I know many Jewish people and both Israelis and, you know, American Jews and, um, you know, just their whole unwillingness, for the most part, to, to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And, of course, you have a... a a lot of diversity among Jewish people. You have Jewish people that are atheists. You have Jewish people that are agnostics. Uh, as a matter of fact, Dave Rubin, who's going to be debating John Lennox in two weeks, is an agnostic Jew. And so uh, probably the majority of the Jewish population would be in that category. But then you have religious Jews. You have Reformed Judaism, which is a very... Uh, I mean, it, in some ways, even though it classifies as Judaism, it's, it's so loose. You can be a Reformed Buddhist Jew. You can be a Reformed Hindu Jew. So, uh, but then you have conservative Judaism, which, like it sounds, is more conservative. But then you have Orthodox Judaism. And generally, it would be among the Orthodox, or even there's a group called the Orthodox, uh, Ultra-Orthodox. It, it's a, it would be among those two groups that you would still have a Messianic expectation of some sense. The... Con, the 
the uh, Reformed Jews would think in terms of a Messianic age, maybe, and the conservatives would probably think like that as well. But with Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, they're looking for a Messiah still. They're thinking that a Messiah is going to come. And as, as to how they're going to know him or identify him, there's various opinions. Most of them just say, well, he's going to bring peace. That's how we'll know him. Um, but here's the interesting thing, and I've said this to some Jewish folks in conversation before, because, you know, Jewish people will say, Jesus is not the Messiah. They're very adamant. Jesus is not the Messiah. And I say, well, you know what? He said he was. <laughs> so you say he's not. He said he was. And listen, Jesus is the only person in history who stood before the high priest of Israel, the highest authority in the land, and their council called the Sanhedrin. He is the only person in history that stood before that group and made that claim. No one else ever did that. No one ever was brought before the high priest because they claimed to be the Messiah. That never happened. But it happened with Jesus. And I just like to say, think about that. Because that's pretty extraordinary, if you ask me. And that's what happened on that day. Now, here's the, the place where we come to the personal application. So what does this mean for us today? And with each one of these things, there is something in each of these things for us personally. So first of all, Jesus as the Son of Man is a human being. So what does that tell us? It tells us that... The Lord has compassion toward us and sympathy with our weaknesses. And, and pretty much just what we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, there Christ is being pictured as, as the high priest. But remember, it says that we do not have a high priest who cannot uh, sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who was in all points tested with, as we are without sin. And so when we come to God's throne, remember, we can come boldly and we can come knowing because he's sympathetic, we can know that we're going to find grace to help us in our time of need. We all need to know this. We all need to remember this. Jesus knows not just because he observes it or not just because he's God and he knows everything. Jesus knows by experience the things that you're going through and that I'm going through. Jesus suffered as a human being. And like I said earlier, he suffered fully as a human being. He didn't have a God shield just right under his skin that really prevented anything from going beyond skin deep. No, everything went as deep with Jesus as it would go with us. And so when we are in trouble, when we are weak, when we are struggling, when we are in difficulty, whatever it is, we have a sympathetic ear from the Lord because he's the son of man. He's a human being just like you and just like me. Secondly, as the son of mankind, we can entrust our lives to his protection, provision, care, and keeping. And not just today, but into the future. You know, isn't it true that we all think about like, well, what, what's going to happen? 
What about my family? You know, as you get older, you start thinking, well, I'm not going to be around forever. I'm not going to be able to always help and do this and that. But Lord, what, what's going to happen? Well, guess what? Jesus is going to take care of it. He's going to make sure that we have a, a good future. The future of us as his people is all wrapped up in what he's done for us and what he will yet do in the days ahead. So I can look at that passage in Hebrews that although we don't see all those blessings that God intended for humanity, we do see Jesus. And we see that he's crowned with glory and honor. And and so we can put our confidence in that. And we can do that today. The Lord's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for us. He's going to secure our future And then finally, the Son of Man as Messiah King, we can trust that the world will not always be in the hands of evil men and demonic forces, but Christ will come again just as he promised, and he will set the world right. Wow, that is so relieving. That is such great news to know that that is what the future actually holds. And as we see the the world and the culture becoming more and more corrupted, I had the disturbing conversation with somebody this morning who were telling me about their children, um, their their child who's in kindergarten, I think, or maybe first grade at the very oldest, um, how they got this new curriculum in their school of sex education for little kindergartners and the things that they want to begin to introduce them to. And I mean, it's just the stuff that's unbelievable. And, but that wasn't even the most disturbing part of it. The most disturbing part was they went to, well, first of all, they were told if they didn't have their kids in this particular class, and if they missed four days, that the sheriff would come to their door to find out, you know, just why the child wasn't there. Now, of course, they still had the option of withdrawing the child from the school, and that's what they did. But the most troubling part, really, was the fact that they went to the principal of the school. The principal is a Christian who goes to a church regularly. And when uh, the woman said, look, this is what's going on. This isn't right. uh, The principal just said, well, we can't do anything about that. That's just what we got to do now. So as a Christian principal, I am going to be uh, complicit in teaching kids things that are absolutely contrary to God's plan and purpose for, now that's, that's a scary thing. And of course, this is all being driven, obviously not from that principle, but it's being driven by outside evil forces. And where does it stop? Well, I can tell you where it will stop for sure. It will stop for sure When the Son of Man, there before the Ancient of Days, receives the dominion over all of the universe. And that day's coming. And so, you know, so so we do two things. We do what we can while we're here to make it a better world, a better place, a safer place. We don't just throw up our hands and say, we can't do anything. We got to just sit around and hope Jesus comes back sooner than we thought he would. But, but that, is, that is the hope that we have. And that's the, that's the confidence that we know 
ultimately where, where it's going to end with the Lord reigning. And, and just as sure as, as Jesus declared it on that day, uh, I am the Christ. And yes, uh, the son of man will, you know, that that's going to happen. We can have confidence in that, but let's do what we can while we're here to spread the gospel and also to impact our culture, to make it a better place for everybody as much as that's possible. We don't want to lose sight of that. But as we close today now, I just want to say this. So all of those prophecies concerning the first coming proved to be true right down to the smallest detail as we saw. They all proved to be true down to the smallest detail. They're going to spit in his face. He's going to be silent before his accusers. And there are many others. And they were fulfilled right down to the detail. So here's the thing that we need to know. That the prophecies about the future are just like the prophecies about the past. They will be fulfilled in like manner. So when we look at this prophecy that we read, this main prophecy from Daniel about the Son of Man and so forth, we don't need to try to spiritualize that or try to figure out, well, I wonder what this really means because it must mean something other than what it says. No, it means exactly what it says. That this will happen at a point in time. That God's word is faithful and what he said would happen in the past happened and what he says will happen in the future will indeed happen. And so we can, again, we can have confidence in that very thing. And so put your trust in the Lord. And if you are a person who has never done that, maybe at this point you've been all around this or maybe everything is new to you, uh, but either way, you, you've never made a personal commitment, which means you're going to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus, who's going to rule the universe. Since that's going to be the case, it'd be really smart to just surrender and say, yes, Lord. And you know, when you say yes, Lord, some people think that, oh, that's so scary. Oh, because I'm going to lose my freedom and I'm going to have to be under somebody else's jurisdiction. Yes, but guess what? You already are under somebody else's jurisdiction. You're under the jurisdiction of somebody who hates you and wants to destroy you, and he's called the devil. But Christ wants to bring you out from under that, and he wants to bring you under his authority. And he loves you, and he wants to bless you, and he has your best interest in mind. And so surrender to that. Give yourselves over to that. Jesus, even though he is the, the Lord of the universe, guess what? He doesn't make people f- choose him. He doesn't make you do it. He gives you the opportunity. And you do that by just saying, okay, Lord, my life now is given over to you. And, and that makes all the difference in the world. So if you've never done that, we're gonna give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. So Father, thank you for... Um, these words, these great truths about your son, Jesus, the one who came as the son of man and who lived a human life and who secured our future as a race and who will one day sit upon the throne of the universe and rule and reign. And oh Lord, we, we long for that. We long for that day. When all this is fully realized, we know that it's partially um, 
happened already, but we, we long for the day it's fully realized. And so as we wait for that, may we be encouraged in our spirits and may we be committed to your will and purpose and may we see your work advance in us and through us in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.